Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing on Team Human today... All the way from Sweden, local food facilitator Victor Zonders. And if you use ecology in a good way, it can really clean up all that pollution. You can restore all the watersheds and you can green the desert. And you can see how much remedy there is in natural systems. Zonders will explain permaculture and how its principles can be applied not only to agriculture, but to humanity at large. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I'm hearing so many people now doing Monday morning quarterbacking on what went wrong in the elections. How did this thing happen? How has the the true public will been confused or or subsumed by this this lying and and bad media and Comey revelations and uh, there's this sense that something has gone wrong that we've taken a detour that we're doing something that's uh, somehow out of the natural trajectory of our progressive and increasingly universal society. And I think what people are missing is that it may not be something that many of us like, but this isn't necessarily something that's a perversion or a natural or strange or a, an awful mutation of something. In some ways, What's going on now is very consistent with where we are 
as a society. You know, we are living in what uh, media theorists like me call a digital media environment. And the digital media environment was bound to be different from the television media environment. And plus, this is just the beginning. This is the, the dawn of a digital media environment. So the ways in which we can compensate for for its qualities, for the the extreme features of a digital media environment, those compensations are just in their infancy. I'm thinking that instead of looking at what's happening as an exception, as a perversion, I think we have to look at it as the qualities of a new landscape. Now, I admit, most of us particularly those of us in the in the early cyberpunk era, we thought that digital technology was going to be different. We thought it was going to connect the world in all of these wonderful new ways. The internet was supposed to break down those last boundaries between what are essentially synthetic nation states, and it was going to herald a new global community of peers national governments were already considered extinct. I remember internet evangelist and Grateful Dead lyricist John Barlow dismissed nation-states in his Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace around 20 years ago. He said, I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. But the internet age has actually heralded the opposite result. We are not advancing towards some new global society, but instead retreating back to nationalism. Instead of moving toward a colors of Benetton racial intermingling, we find many yearning for a fictional past when people like to think our races were distinct and all was well. Welcome to the digital media environment. It's not a continuation of the television environment that preceded it, but an entirely distinct landscape for human society, which engenders a very different set of attitudes and behaviors. A media environment is really just the kind of culture engendered by a particular medium. The invention of text encouraged written history, contracts, the Bible, and monotheism. The clock tower in medieval Europe led to hourly wages and the time-is-money ethos of the industrial age. Different media environments encourage us to play different roles and to see, think, or act in particular ways. The television era was about globalism, international cooperation, and the open society. TV let people see for the first time what was happening in other places, often live, as it happened. We watched the Olympics together by satellite. Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Even 9-11 was a simultaneously experienced global event. Television connected us all and broke down national boundaries, whether it was the British Beatles playing on the Ed Sullivan Show in New York or the California beach bodies of Baywatch broadcast in Pakistan, television images penetrated national divisions. I interviewed Nelson Mandela in 1994, and he told me that MTV and CNN had more to do with ending the divisions of apartheid than any other force. But today's digital media environment is different. At the height of his media era, a telegenic Ronald Reagan could broadcast a speech in front of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin and demand that Gorbachev tear down this wall. Today's ultimate digigenic candidate, Donald Trump, demanded that we build a wall to protect us from Mexicans. 
This is because the primary bias of the digital media environment is for distinction. Analog media, such as radio and television, were continuous, like the sound on a vinyl record. Digital media, by contrast, are made up of many tiny, discrete samples. Likewise, digital networks break up our messages into tiny packets and reassemble them on the other end. Computer programs all boil down to a series of ones and zeros, on or off. And this logic trickles up to the platforms and apps we use. Everything is a choice, from font size to the place on a Snap 2 grid. It's either 12-point or 13-point, position here or there. Did you send the email or not? There are no in-betweens. So it's no wonder that a society functioning on these platforms would tend towards similarly discrete formulations. Like or unlike, black or white, rich or poor, agree or disagree. In a self-reinforcing feedback loop, each choice we make is noticed and acted upon by the algorithms personalizing our news feeds, further isolating each one of us in our own ideological filter bubble. Not one of the thousands of people who showed up in my own Twitter feed supported Brexit or Trump. For those supporters, I'm sure the reverse is true. The internet helped us take sides. This is very different from the television environment, which engendered a big blue marble melting pot, hands across the world, international space station cooperative internationalism, well-funded by globalist foundations from Rockefeller and Ford to Soros and Clinton, who both still espouse the transnational values of the television world. We're flummoxed by today's nationalist, regressively anti-global sentiments only because we're interpreting politics through the now obsolete television screen. The first protests of the digital media landscape, such as those against the World Trade Organization in Seattle, made no sense to the network news. They seemed to be an incoherent amalgamation of disparate causes, environmentalists, labor activists, even anti-Zionists. What unified them, however, more than their ability to organize collectively on the internet, was their shared anti-globalism. The WTO represented the peak of global cohesion, at least as orchestrated by the world's biggest corporations. The protesters had come to believe that the only entities capable of acting on the global level were the ones too big for human beings to control. Those protests were followed by Arab Spring, often misinterpreted as a global movement when it was really more of a series of nationalist revivals. These weren't young people demanding to be part of a world community of revolutionaries. They were local revolutions with clearly defined boundaries. The breakdown of European cohesion can be understood the same way. The European Union is a product of the television environment. Open trade, one currency, free flow of people across boundaries, and the reduction of national identities to mere soccer teams. That goes a long way to explaining the rise of hooliganism over the past few decades. The transition to a digital media environment is making people a whole lot less tolerant of this dissolution of boundaries. Am I Croatian or Serbian, Kurd or Sunni, Greek or European, American or Mexican? But if that newfound need for discrete identity were the entirety of this dynamic, things shouldn't have gotten quite as jingoistic or xenophobic. No, there's something else fueling Trump's backward-looking Make America Great Again and the Brexiters take back control. It's that other main bias of digital media, memory.
Memory is what computers were invented for in the first place. In 1945, when Vannevar Bush imagined the Memex on which computers were based, he described it as a digital filing cabinet. And even though they can now accomplish much more than data retrieval, everything computers do, all of their functions, simply involve moving things from one part of their memory to another. RAM and ROM are just kinds of memory. Meanwhile, as WikiLeaks, Google, Ed Snowden, and the NSA continually remind us, everything we do online is stored in memory. Whatever you said or did on Facebook, Instagram, Gmail, or Twitter is in an archive, timeline, or server somewhere, waiting to be retrieved by someone. So when we combine these two biases, boundaries and memories, we get Brexiters justifying isolation as a confirmation of distinctly British values and a return to the nationalist era when foreigners and other non-whites knew their place. Trump's followers, likewise, recall a clearly redlined past when being white and American meant enjoying a safe neighborhood, a sense of superiority, and a guaranteed place in the middle class. Immigrants were fellow Irish and Italians, not foreigners, refugees, or terrorists leaking illegally across permeable national boundaries, or so it seemed. To be sure, globalism has had some genuinely devastating effects on many of those who are now pushing back. Wealth disparities in an all-time high, and the mitigating effects of local and national economic activity is dwarfed by that of global trade and transnational banks. But the way people are responding to this pressure, so far anyway, is strictly digital in spirit. In some sense, those of us who want to preserve the one-world vision of the TV media environment are the ones who must stop looking back. If we're going to promote connection, tolerance, and progressive internationalism, we'll have to do it in a way that's more consonant with the digital media environment in which we're actually living. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest is Victor Zonders, agriculture activist and permaculture expert. Our equipment failed at the beginning of the interview with Zonders, but we were backing it up on an old iPhone. So the first half of this interview is our iPhone, and the second half is with a real microphone. Welcome to Team Human, where we're trying to, uh, what we're trying to do is help arrest the development of the dehumanizing uh, structures and mechanisms of the industrial age, and help people see how easy it is, uh, or at least how good it would be to uh, uh, retrieve some of the mechanisms that were, uh, uh, that were lost to industrialism. The thing I love about what you're doing is it's actually connected to the real world and the production distribution of food, which seems like the insurmountable problem, but maybe, but maybe it's not. I mean, I guess if you could start by telling us, how did you, how did you get from your digital life to, to one that was so connected to, to the real world? Yeah, um, it's been an interesting kind of uh, track the last couple of years. Um, I, I got into food may, maybe through local economics, and because I, got, I, I, I started looking, getting into the whole why 
am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I working? What's what's happening? Why why are we working the way we're working and stuff like that? And um, then you know, got to the point where okay, we want to change something about how the world economies work and all of that, but all you have to go to the local in order to secure that in order to be able to have space to make changes. To that's what I felt at least that that you know, starting with the local is the easiest way to kind of bridge a new path. I know, but it's interesting though, you know, that, that I came to that conclusion too, really, after writing this book, Life Inc., that rather than trying to go to Obama or Bush or someone and make the big change from the top down, that if I can uh, somehow convince people in on the ground or in small towns and communities just to start behaving a little bit differently where they are, um, all the rest in some ways takes care of itself. You'll run up against a law that needs to be changed. You'll run up against an institution that needs to be brought down, or you'll create enough enough confidence and social bonds between people in a community that it will slowly make them less dependent on Walmart or big agriculture or big medicine or one of the. So those institutions will just deflate on their own rather than us fighting them actively. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I came to this through a lot of different things. I, I went through this permaculture design course training, which was mm-hmm. really looking at how do, you, how do you start with where you are and start with yourself and how do you make yourself and your community work better and how do you uh, begin with what they call like the zone one, the, the closest, and then you branch out from there and you try to make changes uh, further out as you can and as you grow in, in, in competence and as you grow in in uh, resources. And permaculture is an interesting point too because most of us look at permaculture, at least when I was introduced to it, that it's basically a slow agriculture method. That permaculture is like the super organic, you know, don't wreck the soil, look at the networks that are already in the soil and, you know, sort of move it apart with your hands and stick a seed in and close it. You know, that that was permaculture or looking at when do you plant based on biodynamics and where the moon is and the sun. But you're suggesting that it's not just a metaphor for living properly, but actually an approach to yeah, it's everything. A, it's a design approach. So it, it, it's basically a bunch of principles, or, or a lot of it is, comes down to that at least, which is, you know, how do you design for resilience and how do you, you know, make sure that things have multiple uses. And that, I mean, that goes for, for things like business and, and, and like organizations as well. Like how mm-hmm. do you make sure you've got this thing, can you use it for something else than what you're currently using it for? That, that kind of conserves resources and all that stuff. Those principles that apply to the gardening side or the, or the food production side also apply to many different areas. That's interesting. So when I, when I go, I, I was going out trying to convince uh, big agro supermarket chains that were closed on Sundays, some of them, to open their parking lot to farmer's markets. And they'd say, well, we got the, you've got the parking lot space. Why not go do this? Yeah. So I guess in some ways, it's, uh, intuitively, though, that's... That's permaculture. In other words, just say, what's our reuse? What's our, how do we actually expand to fill the capacity of what we have rather than building more stuff? Yeah, exactly. What you're saying is, is what we're trying to get to as well with what we're doing now with the, with the local food platform, which is how do you find a space and time for people to meet and to do local you know, direct sales from, from producers to consumers we have spaces already that, that are you know, either public spaces or private spaces. We have some places in Sweden that are supermarkets that are interested in, in having some of their things not go through them, but be a meeting point for others to come and sell their wares or, or deliver their wares. Because we're, we're trying to do the pre-sell thing 
And so it's easier for farmers. They don't have to bring all their stuff to a farmer market and do all that. But instead, people book it in advance and they know what to bring and who to bring it to. And it's a pretty quick exchange. So do they pre-sell the, well, the way we do here, which doesn't work for a lot of people, is you become a member of a community-supported agriculture group. And then every week they bring you this bag of stuff to the farmer's market. And then there's like, oh, well, my family doesn't really want to have four pounds of dandelion greens. You know, we just don't eat that. Yeah. And so you end up with this stuff. Do you have, are you already working on ways that people can get the things they want rather than just a, a default batch? Yeah, we have that as well. Like that's a part of, you can you can do that mm-hmm. if you want to. But we also want to make it really easy for a producer. Say they have an extra... You know, they have their CSA or something, but they, they grew a lot of tomatoes. So they grew a lot of lettuces and stuff that came up more than they had. So how do you just put that up easily for someone to book it for the next delivery? So say they're going to be in town two weeks from now to deliver a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they put up, oh, but we also have this and this and this that just, you know, this got ready early. Or, or, uh. So they put that up on the site and say people can book that for that delivery. And so it's an extra, it's an extra sale. And you know that people, you know... The gathering together of different producers to one place makes it easier for people to find all of those producers than having to go individually to each like Facebook page or each place where people sell stuff online now uh, and find that farmer's produce. So, so you're an aggregator. We are an aggregator. <laughs> I think there is still space for aggregators. Yeah. I'm sure that, that, that you know, uh, there's a lot of aggregating going on, but... I mean, what we try to do is make it really simple for both the producers and consumers to have the one-on-one while we still have this reality of time. And I mean, I, I maybe don't have time to go around to all the farmers to pick up my, you know, my lamb here and my, my vegetables there and I want a jar of honey. Like, that takes a bit of time. Yeah. You wanna, it's lovely to do those things and we are opening up the communication channels between people and, and their producers so you can have that thing. But we also want to make it possible to just have the, you know, at Tuesdays at 6, I go and pick up my stuff at this spot. And that's, so then logistically, how does that work? The farmers all show up during the day, I guess. The and way, then someone's coordinating and sticking stuff in bags and boxes? Like the way we've worked so far, and this I think will be really interesting to explore, but uh, the way we've worked it so far is that we set a time and a date and every, all the producers come in with all their wares and they have, they have who's booked what. So they've packed their stuff in, in, in bags or in boxes. And, and then the people just go around to the people that they booked stuff from. Oh, that's that. And they right. pay so them either. So 20 farmers, you know the six farmers that you bought stuff from, and you go yeah. and just pick up from each one. Yeah, and it seems to be working. I, I, I mean, we haven't done the large-scale thing. Like, we've done local prototypes where I live uh, and with a really prototype website, which, which, you know, which we are now replacing with, a, with something more robust. So it's been interesting to see once we get to like, if you go in the city mm. and you have a lot more people and, and possibly a lot more producers and kind of like, does that jam up the space? Does it make it harder? You know, these things. It'll be, it'll be fun to see where yeah. how this goes. But or is there I, enough food, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you go into the, the cities close to us, the demand, I think, would far outstretch the supply, at least initially. But I think once you see that as a producer that really motivates you to go, oh, okay, so I don't have to go the regular route of distributing through the big chain stores, which, you know, takes 50% of the profit of, of what I'm producing. Uh, if there's enough people at the same time, it's really valuable for me to just go with my stuff one day a week uh, to deliver it straight. Um, so I think, I'm hoping that this is going to be a tool to make it a lot easier 
for producers to, to make the choice of saying, okay, I'm going to try and try and go straight to the consumer. Right. I mean, there, and then there's so many questions that come up. I mean, first is, do we know yet for sure that locally, appropriately, organically produced vegetables are, is that more efficient economically and environmentally than big agra efficiencies in super big industrial tractor places? I think it's fairly, fairly easy to show. I mean, the, the, the one factor that is really hard for growing in a, in a you know, good, sustainable way is that it takes a lot of man hours. Like, it takes a lot of work. And that's usually quite expensive. In Sweden, it's really, really expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have, we have labor laws and, and taxes that make it really expensive to hire people. You can't and, just use a undocumented <laughs> aliens like we do and pay them 12 well, cents an hour. I'm sure there's some, but I, I wouldn't say it's widespread. And, right. and, and that's a big problem. And it's, you, you don't know, have peasants coming over from Norway or something. Well, yeah. we, we have from the rest of Europe. We have yeah. a lot of people that come into Sweden. And, but, I mean, that's, that's getting a bit difficult as well now with yeah. all the you know, migration things that are happening. But, I mean, in any way, if you, if you look at factors like how much energy are you using and how much land are you using and how much, um, you Pollution know... Pollution are you making? Exactly, yeah. and these kind of things. And how well are your soils after, you know, how... how I mean, the thing with big agriculture things is like you have to keep applying the things and you drain the soil. So you have to give more and more fertilizers. Whereas, right. whereas if, you, if you're doing organic farming in a really good way, you build the soil so that you have to use less and less compost. You have a really live, well soil. So it's, it becomes less economically draining over time. Uh, instead of being more and more expensive over time. Right. If you right. look at these factors, it's pretty easy to see that it's, you know, it's more economical if you, at least if you're, if you're factoring those things. I mean, right. If you, if, as they do, the, the big agri companies in many cases don't buy the land. They just destroy the land. And then they, and this is their balance sheet terminology, they externalize the cost of environmental destruction to whoever's going to have the land next. So, yeah, you might get 10 years of yields cheaper by using DuPont chemicals, but for the next 500 years, the topsoil is depleted and unusable, which is what I'm, you know, finding out now in the research I'm doing is that the majority of topsoil in America is becoming unusable. So the bread basket and the corn belt and all Mm. these places actually go away after Mm. a while. And there is, I mean, that's, for me, I've been following the whole, there is a big movement in regenerative agriculture, which, I mean, the whole point is that you regenerate the landscape, you regenerate the soils, you regenerate the watersheds while you're producing your food. So, and that's a really, really productive way. If you're doing this in a good way, uh, you can use, like a lot of the, 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 the methods that make the soil well is, is using, you know, perennial plants to get life at all times in the soil and stuff like, and those things you can you can use to sell as well. So you can get more like fruits that are really high value and nuts and things right. like that if you diversify enough. And but but it, it requires this you know uh, switching from the, the 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 mindset of I only know how to do a monoculture thing as a producer uh, to being able to say okay I'll try these all these different things and try to sell them and I mean it's it's, it's a bigger job than right. being I'm doing this. But this is stuff that farmers knew like a thousand years ago, isn't it? Or, or is that just myth? 
I don't know. That's a bit hard to say. But I, 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 I you know, you I, say like Native I mean, Americans sure. and how they take Was, care of this, and yeah, you know, the, you, the seed commons of India. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, even even just uh, you know, maybe two hundred years ago or something, when you when you had self sufficiency at a pretty high level when you're a farmer, like you 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 you're not buying a lot of stuff from other people to eat, right. you're eating most of what you So you have a few animals and you have a few, you know, you, you're growing some of this, some of that, some cabbages and potatoes, whatever, maybe potatoes was not. But, you know, still, you had that diversified set already. So what this, you know, design science around it is trying to do is, is how do you, I mean, how do you still use what is a, a scientific way of trying to optimize and trying to find what's the right, for this place where we are in the soils and how it's looking, what's the right remedy to make that, you know, work? It's using the, the big common knowledge pool of, of, which is what the internet is great for, right. uh, and then trying to apply that to, to uh, the local settings and how do you get back to that? So, and a right. lot of it is local knowledge, like a lot of the knowledge about the trees and the, what species work around here and what are the, like the local adapted species. Like a lot of right. that is really useful. It becomes extremely specific, yeah. Which is, again, it's sort of anything specific is anathema to the current sort of startup economic ethos that you need these universal one-size-fits-all solutions because otherwise your business model is bounded. What do you mean? There's only 500,000 people who are going to take advantage of your business? Well, what then? Mm. What then? But, you know, it's the incompatibility of a growth-based economic and business model with a sustainably-based uh, agriculture or marketplace. And it seems to me... You know, back in the, even in the days of the, the founding of America, the guys who would go to uh, write the laws of this country 200, 300 years ago were farmers. You know, John Adams and even Thomas Jefferson, these guys had farms. So they sort of, I feel like they understood some of the pre-industrial agricultural laws, really, or biases that you're describing. And then that informed the legal system, say, mm -hmm. oh, the legal system's going to have a sort of, it's going to be cyclical, it's going to be self-correcting, we're going to try to create a sustainable nation rather than some burnout, you know. Mm. feels easy to me to see if if you are, say you're coming to America and, and, and there's not, you know, industrialized society around you. You go around and there's, there's a lot of, you know, forests and woods and trees and all that stuff. You don't get as... Uh, far away, so it's really easy to see the, uh, the results of what you're doing. Do you find old people are are, are excited about what you're doing? I know when um, I joined a CSA in America, it's Community Supported Agriculture. For listeners who don't know, it's just where you uh, you know sign up and get a monthly pack of organic stuff from a local farm. And there was this, I signed up with this, you know, uh, uh, biodynamic, Rudolf Steiner-based, you know, crazy thing. And I made this salad, and uh, my mom came over for dinner, and she was eating the salad, and she said, my God, salad hasn't tasted like this since I was a little girl. It was as if this is the first salad she's had in 70 years that tastes, you know, mm. and, she, and it, it sparked this memory for her of what food tasted like before it was just filled with whatever this, you know, mm -hmm. nickel dioxide plasma poison stuff that's on it now, you know, or that it was maybe greener or had more minerals like into the yeah. 
we must taste minerals I mean, on that's, our tongue. If, if there's no, if, if the, the food web in the soil isn't there, the, the, the plants all get their minerals from, you know, their connections to the fungi and the, and the soil and all that stuff. And if you're just giving them the, the MPK, the fertilizers, there's like three, three, you know, elements out of the, you know, who knows how many it is. There's like, we've counted like 17 that plants need, but, you know, it's probably more. So that's, you know, they're not getting those elements and they're right. not developing in a proper way. Like people don't develop if they don't get, you know, the vitamins and all that right. stuff. So it's, it's, it's clear to see that it won't be as, as good a product if you're not getting the whole range of what you yep. need. You know, the FDA, they had to recalculate all of the food values of the various vegetables because they changed. So, you know, broccoli had so much vitamin C and vitamin A in 1950. They had to recalculate everything for 2016 because broccoli doesn't have as much in it. You know, as it did back then, at least our regular store store bought uh, broccoli grown on dead topsoil. Yeah. yeah, that's the whole nutrient density debate, which is yeah also pretty interesting. But the old people, I mean, do you find some of them are uh, like, "Yay, this is back. This is the way it was." Or is there some recognition? I, yeah, some. I mean, for people that are into food, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the people that, and and in the countryside, there's quite a bit of those. Even even in the small towns. You mean like that, foodie people? Like, even, but even uh-huh. even people that grew up growing food, you know, mm-hmm. and people that have a, a connection to food. And I mean, and I don't know. Maybe maybe people like seventy eighty, are that have a really strong connection because I'm. I mean, my probably my parents' generation um, was at least for for me. They were they were lived in cities and had this. You know, you're, you're used to going to buy your food, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, for the last 30, 40 years. And um, I don't, it's hard for me to say, like, I know that they love good food, but I don't think that they've, you know, come to the place where, where they, they really think about what their food is coming from and, and all that stuff as much. But, I mean, that's a really growing trend. That's something that's been happening a lot in Sweden the last couple of years. It's like, why, what's happening with our food? Where is it coming from and what's... What's in it, and this sh- you know the sugar debate has been really big lately. Mm. You know, how much sugar is in your food, and what are you kids eating, and all that? Yeah, it seems so maybe a little bit easier to do it where you are because Sweden, at least as a nation state, it's scaled just a little bit more appropriately than America. You know, we are so big that to challenge anything like where your food is coming from, it's almost uh, it's seen as this assault on the American way and corporate mm-hmm. capitalism and what are you saying? But uh, uh, I feel like a, a, so Sweden or Denmark or these kind of countries and you think, oh, well, they can do it because they're scaled. How can we, uh, do you look at America and feel more hopeless for us? Most of the really interesting projects though, I find in, are in America. I mean, that's hmm. English, that's English language. I don't, I don't get that much from, 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 you know, South America and, and Africa and right. Asia, but, but still, there is a flexibility, I think, within the U.S., which is a bit. I mean, we are quite rigid as a, mm. as a nation and as a people. We are very. Um, I mean, there's a positive positive side of it, and there's a negative side of being, you know, kind of conservative with what we let in and what we, how we change our behaviors. And I think we're quite slow to change our behaviors over time. Uh, and still, we have a, quite a progressive side as well. That's true, but Americans, it is kind of true. We're, I mean, look at this last election. We're willing to go, ah, screw government. Let's yeah. just try, let's make this into reality TV. Well, that's just just something new for the sake of new. So we are sometimes willing to try on things or, or yeah. turn on a dime. 
And I think legislatively as well, and it's it's probably less regulated in some areas in the U.S. than it is in Sweden. And I mean that's that's also sometimes a real real makes it a lot easier. So if, for instance, getting uh, an on-site slaughtery for a farm is quite hard in Sweden. You know, food regulations are pretty intense, which can make it you know very difficult mm-hmm. at times. But I mean, you have the same problem a lot in the U.S. There's a uh, Polyfade Farms, Joel Saladin talks a lot about that, and he's a big food uh, dude. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Sweden is a, it, it has been and it is still quite, you know, good at at getting things from the outside, but it takes a long time. We're quite slow to adapt, I think, as a people. So we'll see how it goes. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's a global thing that people are, are are looking into what they eat and stuff. It's that slow, uh, that slow transformation rather than uh, a rapid, mm-hmm. sudden, punctuated, uh, you know, uh, punctuated shifts that seem to do it. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, that's really explains why I got into the food thing as well because that's like the one fairly, in my view, fairly easy way to to to. You know, I mean, pretty hard to build your own car. I'm going to this. After afternoon, I'm going to this place called Open Source Ecology, where they're trying to do a lot of that kind of radical stuff. But mm-hmm. but it's quite hard to get people to you know to completely change their lives and, and you know don't buy anything that's that's bad for for anybody. You know that's a tough order. But but yeah, food, it makes food's you fairly fairly simple. I mean, it's it's you find somebody locally that you think grows in a good way, and you you go there sometimes instead of going to the store. So it's like. It's 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 a it's one of those things that are that are fairly easy to transition into, yeah. and I think it'll make a very big difference. And well, you know what it's like for a kid to see that a carrot comes out of the ground instead of out of a bag. You go, oh my yeah. god, there's dirt on it. Yes, there's dirt on it. What does that mean to you? Yeah. It grew out of that dirt. So do we want that dirt to be clean dirt or dirty dirt? You know, and it's a uh, it is fun. It is fun, and it, it I don't know going slow. It's a little more hopeful. I mean, the 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 methodology of 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 cultural or social transformation has to be consonant with the techniques that we're trying to sell anyway. You know, if we're trying to sell a sustainable, slow, deliberate approach, then you've got to uh, uh, push for social change that way. It's not a matter mm. of buying ads on TV. You know. Yeah. That's why it's so interesting for people when they get into real ecology and all the permaculture stuff, and you can see how potent and how much remedy there is in natural systems. And, and if you use ecology in a good way, it can really clean up all that pollution. And it can really do, you know, restore all the watersheds, and you can green the desert, and you can do all these things, which is so. Once you really see like what's happening in that field, you can go like, oh, okay, we maybe you know, maybe we can do deal with this climate change thing and maybe we can deal with, you know, the food problems and the water problems and all this stuff. Um, so I, th- and I think that's necessary in order to not get trapped in that kind of, you know, things seem to be, you know, falling out of place. And that's, that's why we have Team Human. The people on the side, I mean, it's not humans against nature or something, but I think it's a good, a good litmus test on whether we're uh, going in the right direction is whether... We're maintaining a, uh, a an environment that's capable of sustaining human life. It's kind yeah. of a good. Yeah, I mean, even even you know, if if human life was was not sustained, a lot of other life would be. So it's not 
that's that can't be our primary goal is to just have something live you know yeah it's, we gotta we gotta try to make it work for us and i think so and, and i think that's all right i don't think it's hubris no you know uh, because i don't want the machines in charge it's, no that's it's it's strange to think that we're not in charge of the machines but yeah we're kind of not but that's only because the machines were programmed to enable capitalism not to enable humanism and that yeah. seems to be an easy remedy. Just program the other way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can still, you know, they're, they're electrical machines. You can, you can, a lot of it. You can of kind it. of pull the plug if you have to, you know. But <laughs> so far. So far. So far. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. The show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Team Human was supported by underwriting donations from Meetup. Start your own Team Human Meetup at meetup.com. From Aaron Dignan at theready.com, Zago, and from listener support through the website. Special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on the show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.